Hello and welcome to Man on the Clapham Omnibus Sport Review. Today I'm doing part two of the secret history of the Premier League. And that's really focusing on, on the owners. You know, we, we speak a lot about the players, the managers, we talk about the media, but the owners are really on the sidelines. You know, it's not something we focus about in great deal in terms of books, in terms of television coverage. Because historically English football has been dominated by the manager. English football's great teams have all had fantastic managers who built the club in their image. You know, who really set the tone, the tenor. You know, even as something as simple as picking out the kits and the colours. The, you know, the age of the manager, which really comes from the mid-twenties and is, and is really the dominant force in English football. They are the ones who buy the players, they sell the players, they set the players' contracts, they set their wages. No team in English football gets to any level of importance without a great manager. You know, Liverpool have Shankly, they have then the boot room. You know, Spurs have Arthur Rowe and Bill Nicholson. Manchester United have Busby and then later Sir Alex Ferguson. Arsenal have Herbert Chapman. In other words, the owners are quite important at the beginning process. That's when you're setting teams up and you're really creating you know, the modern league structure. Where there's teams moving, you know, Henry Norris moving, Woolwich Arsenal to Finsbury and North London. But from that point until really the, the dawn of the Premier League, it is the age of the manager. The manager is what no, no team does well, no team does brilliant. No team does well because of an owner. The owner's really someone there who does the bidding of the manager. In other words, if the manager delivers success, they, the, the owner will give them the transfer money. If the, you know, the manager does brilliantly well you know, and demands a training ground, the owner will give you a training ground. You know, if you know, your team are doing so brilliantly well, the stadium needs to be you know, built up, the owner will do it. But it's not the owner out in front. It's always the, the manager. And it's only until you get to the dawn of the Premier League, because it's the owners that decide to break away from the Football League. It's the owners who decide to put English football television coverage behind a paywall by you know, getting Sky to do it instead of ITV. So, as a result, it fundamentally alters the, the, you know, the balance of English football. It doesn't happen immediately. In other words, it would have felt exactly... Normal. In other words, you go from a period of Liverpool dominance in the 80s with a little bit of you know success for Everton, a little bit of success for Spurs, and you know in the later 80s some success for Arsenal. And then both Liverpool and Arsenal start to decline in the early 90s, which then opens up the door for Alex Ferguson, who's been at United since the late 80s, who then Manchester United become the dominant club. In other words, at first glance, Nothing much appeared to be that different. If you start the dawn of the Premier League and the three you know, biggest and most successful clubs of in that era, you'd say, well, OK, Arsenal, Man United and Liverpool. That's been a case for an extended period of English football history. But the interesting thing is, is that when Liverpool and Arsenal are in you know, decline, you know, Arsenal due to the Bung scandal and the, the decline of... You know, the really great Arsenal team that you know, of the late 80s, early 90s. 
And if you look at the decline of Liverpool, you know, that was really brought on by Kenny Dalglish's, you know, spectacular and understandable resignation. Is that instead of it being a the team that filled the void in who was going to, to compete with United for, you know, Premier League dominance, it wasn't the managers of the t- those teams that were the guiding point. It was the owners. Kenny, you know, Kenny Dalglish does not go to second division Blackburn, who are on the verge of being relegated into the third division, without Sir Jack Walker, because he's put the money in to build up Ewood Park. He's spending money on the training ground. He's willing to put money forward for signings to get Blackburn not only into the Premier League but competing at the top end of it. You know, Kevin Keegan doesn't come in on his white charger to save Newcastle and be the Messiah when they're just about to be relegated Division Three. Without Sir John Hall and the project that Sir John Hall basically gives to Keegan. Now, I've criticised Kevin Keegan. I've called him a populist demagogue. And in some ways, I am harsh on him. And here is where I sort of apologise. In the sense that what Dalgleish and Keegan do, what they are fantastically good at, and this is what they create the modern managers in the previous podcast I've done, is that they spend that money... And they get success almost instantaneously. They both get promoted very quickly. They both establish themselves. There is a void, but it wasn't guaranteed that Newcastle and Blackburn were the teams that were going to fill that void. You know, neither of them had any long-term history of success. You know, the last great Blackburn team was pretty much the 19th century. You know, Newcastle had always been a big side, but had never been a successfully successful one. Especially not at the upper end of competing for league titles. So they have this success. But, and that's really the the diamond moment for the, the sort of first wave of brick owners. Now, when I'm talking about bricks, what I'm saying is, is that, you know, if we're talking, you know, major world economies, you're talking about, you know, Great Britain, United States, you know, China, Russia, you know, Europe, big European countries, in the sort of when the decline of communism is saying. What you then had was the next level, which was BRICS. So that was Brazil, Russia, India, China and Singapore. And really the history, the modern history of the Premier League, if you were going to tell that story, it'd be the story of the BRICS. So in this case, you're talking about you know, the up-and-coming, you know, emerging teams, emerging you know, economic powers. And so if you were going to do a sort of Ken Burns documentary, you'd be talking about Blackburn Rovers, you'd be talking about Chelsea, Tottenham... Leeds, clubs of that nature. So really, Blackburn and Newcastle are the early adapters. So they have the, the sort of early success. But really, the Blackburn is, is a short-term project. In the end, they get the Premier League title in 94-95, at which point Dalgleish has taken that team as far as he considers it. He doesn't think that they're going to do much in Europe. He doesn't see much benefit in him staying. He he's you know done exactly what he was asked to do, win the Premier League, and Blackburn are uh, you know Jack Walker has done his patrician part. In other words, the first wave of brick owners, you know they can see some benefits to the money being coming in via Sky, but they're not doing it for profit reasons. They're doing it for the glory of you know Newcastle, the glory of Blackburn, with knowledge that they want. They they spend money on infrastructure, so they build the stadiums, they build the training grounds. But with Blackburn in particular, there's a knowledge that this isn't going to last forever. They're not going to be the preeminent team in England. They simply don't have 
you know, Blackburn isn't big enough. They're never going to get enough fans. You know, it wasn't. It was. This was an age before really mobile phones became widespread. This was before the internet. There really isn't the scope for Blackburn to have global support. This is almost a one-off, and they quite quick, quietly decline without too much, too many issues, and they end up getting relegated within sort of three to four years of winning the Premier League. They're in Division One. But by the time, and this is where this podcast is really going, is the Abramovich years. But by the time they, before Abramovich has even pitched up at Chelsea, Blackburn have got themselves promoted, are in the sort of you know, top half of the table. They win the League Cup in 2002 against Spurs at Cardiff, you know, Millennium Stadium. They re-establish themselves, and they've come to an equilibrium. You know, the Jack Walker Trust is running the club, and it's running the club well, within its means, to a logic level. In other words, yes, you can imagine Blackburn if they're well run with the support, the history and all and the sort of financial backing could establish and maintain Premier League status. And when things are going well, the top half, when things are going less well, sort of lower mid table. And when you get to 2003, you know, Newcastle, they have you know, this sort of they replace Blackburn as the preeminent challenger to United. And they go 12 points clear in 95-96. And Keegan eventually, yeah, they lose that. Yeah, they lose it for a variety of reasons. You know, for me personally, they probably weren't 12 points better off than United. So in the end, you know, it was almost regression to the mean that sort of brought down the... Because I think 12 points at the start of the year is such a, such a big number psychologically you're thinking they'd, st- they'd have to lose four times and they would still have the advantage in terms of goal difference because they were considered this very entertaining team scoring lots of goals although now if we compare it to the Monday they didn't score you know nowhere near the sort of goals that you know, even sort of lower mid-table teams are sort of churning out but at the time they were very exciting and there was a psychology to it but eventually you know Keegan's managerial style always led them to go one step too far. They'd always bring in a striker, even if they didn't necessarily need one. But that was how Keegan's psychology worked and how the fans worked. So eventually they had this collapse. He then, you know, tries to one up them, you know, one up the world almost and you know, the Premier League by signing Alan Shearer. But eventually the the energy and this is what happens when Kevin Keegan goes somewhere, eventually you have the very tearful, emotional resignation and he moves on and takes his, you know, dog and pony show to the next place, does the next same thing, on and on and on and on. Really though so what you've had is you've had a sort of symbiotic relationship. In other words, Dalglish and Keegan don't go to Blackburn and Newcastle without the owners. You've never had a situation like that in English football. In other words, when Clough goes to, to Nottingham Forest, it's not because the owners are going to give him a huge amount of money. He sees the project, and as long as the owners underwrite what he's doing, he will do the rest. As long as you keep signing the checks when I ask you to sign the checks, it's, you know, so the owner isn't that important. This time, in the, at the start of the Premier League, the owner is vital. They won't, the manager won't go there. And the point is, is that the reason that Walker was able to put so much money and the reason Sir John Hall was able to put so much money into those clubs was because they, the, you know, the managers used it well. You know, Keegan and, and Dalglish, to an extent, were the, you know, the first modern managers, the first media managers, because they were able to persuade foreign players to come over. 
that's more Keegan than Dalglish. Dalglish was able with his star power and his history of being a fantastic player and a fantastic player manager and latterly manager for Liverpool was able to persuade people to go to these unfashionable locales such as Blackburn, such as Newcastle. And eventually it leads to Wenger. Because basically, in the end, what happens is, is that you have a course correction. In other words, Newcastle, after 96, start to fade away. They have a bit of a revival, you know, in the early 2000s under Bobby Robson, who's an amazing manager. But they're not able to sustain competing with Manchester United on a year-by-year level. By this point, Arsenal and Liverpool, your economic and political, in a sporting sense, heavyweights, start to reform. Arsenal reformed first by signing Arsene Wenger. And his use of the foreign markets and his ability to enact change and expedite change that was already taking place leads them to then become the challengers. Liverpool, you know, they then start to reform. The first time they hire a foreign manager, someone who isn't part of the boot room ethic in Gerard Houllier. And by the end of the, you know, end of the millennium, the start of the, the early 2000s, they're on their way back. So in the end, by the time you get to the stage that, you know, Abramovich is close to getting on the scene, things have gone a little bit back to normal. In, and really what you've then got is the second wave of, of brick owners. And that's, you know, Risdale at Leeds and Ken Bates at Chelsea. Now, Bates has been in charge since the late 80s, but when you're talking about Chelsea, it's not quite as... In other words, it's very easy to compare Newcastle and Blackburn. They do very similar things with very similar methods and similar kind of managers. It's not a surprise that Dalglish, when he leaves Blackburn, ends up at Newcastle. But with Chelsea, it's slightly different because you've got the ground. Now, the history of Chelsea is entirely based around Stamford Bridge. So really, you had the late 80s and 90s, the battle for Stamford Bridge, at which point they, they, they guarantee ownership. The CPO works, and then Ken Bates gets to work on his own plan. So his viewpoint was he wanted a lasting legacy to Chelsea and Ken Bates. And Chelsea Village was his image, the idea you'd have... Shops, restaurants, nightclubs, hotel, all surrounding this ground on prime London real estate, and that eventually this would lead to Chelsea being sort of able to challenge United economically and out on the field. And they go and they spend a large amount of money and they become a very glamorous club. And slowly but surely, after an extended period, you know, in the doldrums where they've been relegated and unfashionable, and that was, you know, partly related to the fact that Stafford Bridge looked so unfashionable. They build the stadium, it's 42,500 seats, the village works. However, the, because at this point, the Premier League is changing. There's more money coming in. The Champions League is starting to expand. You know, the television rights are going up. You're getting the first inkling of you know, foreign money coming in, in the terms of you know, selling rights abroad. And whereby the first you know, wave of brick owners were not aiming to you know, make a profit. They were doing it for you know, almost patrician reasons. There's an element that actually in the late 90s with the rise of Leeds and Chelsea is that you have to spend money to make money. And that if you just put it, if you get your team up there and if you can stay there, then it will you know, become a sort of self-perpetuating cycle. 
they go about it in slightly different ways. In other words, Leeds, they don't spend money on the training ground, they don't spend money on the ground. They just, it's almost a Ponzi scheme. The idea is if you just keep pouring money in terms of, you know, just the attitude of the club. In other words, if everyone always travels in executive jets, if you have expensive fish in the broad room, if you keep signing player after player after player, eventually all you will become a great club, even almost in spite of your surroundings. And for a while, it keeps up. As long as they sort of, there's an element, you know, they have a great youth system. So they have, you know, Alan Smith. They end up with Paul Robinson, a handful of other, you know, talented young players that create a sort of leads core to it. They have a manager who's good in David O'Leary at managing these younger players. They then spend money to, you know, strengthen the squad. And they have this fantastic, you know, run in the year in the Champions League. But there's, there's it, as any Ponzi scheme, it ends up going horribly wrong. And by the, you know, sort of dawn of Abramovich, Leeds are, you know, are swimming in debt and they are falling very, very close towards relegation. Chelsea is slightly different. In other words, they do spend a huge amount of money, but some of it is the infrastructure in trying to, you know, build Chelsea Village, trying to maintain success and trying to build on it very quickly. The whole point is is that previously in the age of managers, in the age of managers, you had a situation where it would take two to three years. But you would then build in the long term so that you'd almost the first two, three years, you might be getting promoted. You might be getting a few players from the youth system, pensioning off a couple of older players. You might make a couple of signings, and then you'd have a period of maybe four or five years, a window of success. What Dalgleish, Keegan, what Newcastle, what Blackburn, what the first wave of owner, brick owners did was completely obliterate that. It, you could have success within three seasons if you put enough money in, if you put the right... And at first, it does have some success, but both of them end up... You know, it's short-term success long, yeah, and a slow, sort of gentle decline with... Le- because there isn't the money there to keep up. In other words, when you know, Blackburn have their you know, Champions League campaign, there's no money involved, not a huge amount, not life-changing amounts of money. Whereby by the late 2000s, there is. In other words, you know, Ken Bates wants you know, Chelsea Village to be his legacy, and it is his legacy. He also understands that there is money to be made. And that if you get into the Champions League, if you can get, you know, if you can, that capital expenditure can work. It's not going to be a sunk cost. Chelsea Village, the idea is it's, you're, is that in the long term it's going to benefit Chelsea to the point where they'll be making a huge amount of profit from their outside endeavours without even having to worry about the gate money. You know, traditionally, English football teams just had a stadium that was you know crumbling Edwardian you know, remnants of it and you'd have X amount of home games, hopefully a few cup games if you got lucky, and that's where you made your money. You'd get maybe a cheque every year for you know the TV rights. Whereby, by the late 90s, it's completely different. If you even just getting into the Champions League adds thirty million, unfortunately with Leeds, their attitude is if we spend forty million pounds to get there, as long as the next thirty million comes in, the next thirty million, and then maybe next time it'll be sixty million. Is that principle, which is why it ends up being a Ponzi scheme and it ends up failing. Unfortunately, with Ken Bates, is that he just doesn't have the money. It runs out effectively. And by the time Abramovich is about to pitch up, they're two, about 200, 250 million pounds in debt. And although 
they're a much more saleable asset because they have Stamford Bridge, because of all the building work that's been done on it, they're still in trouble. And, you know, the success that Arsenal have had under Wenger, the success and the growing success that Liverpool are having in terms of their, in 2001, they do the treble, they win the FA Cup, the League Cup and the UEFA Cup, shows that the bricks haven't really worked. In other words, you can pump the money in, but, you know, if you think by the summer of 2003, Leeds are declining. You know, Newcastle have, have plateaued out. You know, Blackburn are you know, plateaued out. You know, Chelsea are shoot, you know, they're still up there, they're still in you know, Champions League, but their long-term prognosis isn't particularly good. And in all instances, there was an element of glory... There was some element of infrastructure. If you tried to spend infrastructure, you'd be better off. If you didn't spend any money on infrastructure, you'd be leads and in trouble. Which really leads us on to the sort of the last of the brick owners. And that's Alan Sugar at Spurs. Now, Alan Sugar is kind of the middle, the Venn diagram between these sort of five clubs. Because when he buys Spurs, it's a patrician style. It's Tottenham are in financial trouble. I'm a local boy made good. I'm going to do what's right and buy this club and save it. Which he deserves credit for. He was not someone who was, you know, a deeply knowledgeable football fan. But he did the right thing. But he becomes the first of the investor owners. In other words, when he takes over, he then sees the potentiality for it. And the the advantages that it brings to him. So in other words, he's the one that really helps push along Sky getting the TV deal. Because he can see that, you know, if Sky get the TV, the Premier League overnight, their subscription levels will rise. And Amstrad, his own company, are the ones that make the set-top boxes and the dishes. So immediately they all benefit. And so slowly, you know, and he's he he's two owners. He's basically, at one point, someone who has some really great ideas. In other words, his signing of Jürgen Klinsmann in 1994 was generally revolutionary. The difference is, is that they spend the money to get Jürgen Klinsmann and they get him for one magnificent year. Arsenal sign you know, Dennis Burkamp and they get him for six or seven years and they are really able to build upon him, You know the players that are around him. So in other words, you know, they have a, you know, Ian Wright has a fantastic season next to Burkamp. Nicholas Anelka makes his career next to Burkamp. Thierry Henry makes his career next to Burkamp. The same thing doesn't really happen for Spurs. You have this one magnificent year, and then he goes back to Bayern Munich. But uh, unfortunately with Sugar, his football acumen is always lacking. And as a result, and Spurs are so infrastructurally behind in terms of comparing them to Manchester United, even to an extent comparing them to Liverpool and Arsenal, and especially you know when compared with the sort of doping that goes on at Newcastle and Blackburn, they're massively behind. They only really finished the redevelopment in White Hart Lane in the late nineties. It's thirty six thousand, at which point everyone is ahead of that at that juncture. They they redo the training ground, but that's nineteen ninety nine. So in other words, you know even the signing of Klinsman, it that window of opportunity when Spurs had made that signing was fantastic. But within two or three years, everyone had caught up and had surpassed them. So in other words, when Arsenal make the truly revolutionary move of getting Wenger in, within a couple of years, Spurs end up with Christian Gross, who is nowhere near as successful. Yeah, that's also because you know the team that Wenger inherited was a lot better. 
but there's always an element of the money gets spent but badly. And so Spurs become full slowly but surely behind. But whenever you know Alan Sugar has a good idea, there's not enough follow-up on it. His last sort of kind of move, just before he sells the club in 2001, is really what, you know, he does a good job in terms of he leaves Spurs debt-free when he sells it. You know, he he makes a profit, but he's not, you know, he, you understood that when he signed, when he saved the club from, you know, a really awful financial situation, he leaves them with a better stadium, he leaves them with a brand new training ground, and he leaves them debt-free. But he's made a profit. He's the first person that really signed up to an English club and made a profit from it. And in terms of, you know, from his business perspective because of the Sky and the Amstrad, and also from actually just pumping up the value of the club in just being a good steward. Unfortunately, on the pitch, they're not that successful. Because he really lacks the, just the knowledge. They don't hire the right people, and the expenditure is always lesser than all the clubs around them and even when they do spend a bit of money it just doesn't work and it's really only right at the end when he basically decides to go to a director of football model now that was relatively revolutionary at the time but what he does which is interesting and is that they have the transfer budget for George Graham who's the manager and they then have the director of football in David Pleat and they give him his own separate transfer budget and he can buy his own players and you know from the lower leagues and essentially and it's it's amazing that it worked it's amazing that George Graham didn't get irritated by having effectively someone who was you know also had, had a long history of being a manager especially at the same club in David Pleat you know really buy young players for him you know the traditional english manager would have said that's my purview but it works yeah, they sign Matthew Everington and Simon Davies for £1.2 million. Davies goes on to be a particularly decent attacking midfielder for Spurs. He has an injury and it, you know, doesn't quite kick on to where he when he first started. But they still sell him for a profit. And Matthew Everington doesn't do quite as well. But he's a talented, left, you know, pacey, left-footed winger. And they end up part exchanging him and end up with Frederick Canute. You know, Gary Doherty spends about three or four years there. I mean, unfortunately with him, he was doing brilliantly well, broke his leg horrendously against Torquay in September the 5th, 2001, and he never quite gets to be the same player. But he still ends up scoring something like 12, 13, 14 goals for Republic of Ireland, you know, over 50 caps, and we sell him on for a profit. And that's really setting the institutional model for what happens with the Spurs team of the last you know, 5, 10, 15 years. It's the groundwork. And really what's fascinating is, is that he then sells Spurs to Enoch, who are really the, the second investor-owner model. So they come in and they are running it again for a profit. Now, the interesting thing about Enoch, which is probably somewhat understated, is that they originally have, you know, a lot of investments. So they owned something like 30% of Rangers. They owned Vicenza in Italy. They owned Slavia Prague in the Czech Republic. And they owned a couple of other teams. And it's really the first time that an, a, an outfit had seen the potential for the growth and the rise of globalised football. 
it's probably, I'd say maybe 10, 15 years too early. In other words, there are rules. In other words, you can't have all of those teams in Europe facing against each other. They can't really buy between them. But it really is the sort of starting point for what you have at Udinese with the Pozzo family owning Watford and Granada and the City Football Group, which I'll probably talk about a bit later. But it's how Enoch then build upon, you know, Sir Alan Sugar's legacy at Spurs in building Tottenham to be, you know, when they're, they're rise to prominence is that they do it using, you know, effectively part of Sugar's model, buying young players, English players, and building a team through that, and then using them either to sell on for a profit or to boost, you know, the club, so that they can then get to the next level. But it's a very slow development. In other words, it's, you know, you saw that they, Enoch took over in April 2001. It wasn't going to be a quick turnaround. Not in the same way that, you know, with... Newcastle and Blackburn, you were starting with a completely fresh slate. Even to an extent, at you know, sort of Chelsea and Leeds, you had a similar situation. And then with Leeds, they could build upon sort of the some of the positives of the sort of Howard Wilkinson era. With Chelsea, you know, circa sort of ninety four, you know, they're able to bring in Glenn Hoddle and just say. Start with do whatever you want. So he, you know, Glenn Hoddle brings in some of the youth players, makes his own signings, and then they start. You know, Ken Bates as part of this sort of Chelsea Village plan. Then starts getting in some very famous players. So you know, he gets Rude Hullet to come in, and he becomes player manager. Leads to Gianluca Vialli. And at each point, it's a, a quick turnaround, whereby Enoch, it's completely the opposite way around. But yeah, they would love quick success. But they're more than willing to build slowly but surely to get Spurs, you know, because really it's their investment. So it's while again, they're no different from Sugar in regards to they are looking to get their asset to grow so that they can grow the profits, grow the size of the club. So if they were to ever sell their investment, they would make a substantial profit. And they sort of have the, the elements of football acumen that Sir Alan Sugar lacks. Sir Alan Sugar was someone who said, look, who would give money to the manager and say, buy who you want, I have no idea who it is. There's a famous story that um, Tottenham were trying to sign Michael Bridges, who was a highly rated um, striker. And he just goes, so who are you then, this person I'm spending all this money on? And that's when they're meeting the player. You know, which just sounds rinky-dinky. You can imagine an owner saying that to a player these days. But that was something that you know, Sugar's managerial style you know, he gets replaced by this fresh-faced young man called Daniel Levy. But Levy's style is, you know, he's very hard-edged. But his idea is, is that, you know, he's a Spurs fan, he's a season ticket holder. And the best, it's almost a, a sort of a pact. You know, if the investment is to do well, then the club has to do well. And he builds it with the knowledge that he they're going to be there for an extended period of time. You know... So John Hall ends up selling. Jack Walker ends up, you know, obviously passes away. The Jack Walker Trust takes over. But it's under the obvious implication that the Jack Walker Trust isn't going to run Blackburn forever. Eventually they want to sell on. And with Leeds in particular, they want to be there, you know, for an ex- you know the ownership group wants to be there for an extended period of time. But there is a knowledge at some point there will be a reckoning. 
unless they can just keep up this unsustainable level of success, which will then underwrite the you know, Ponzi scheme that they're running in terms of the amount of money that they are just pulling in you know, from Europe, the league, and the increasing revenue that football is bringing. Which really then leads us to the second wave of this, which is Roman Abramovich. So really, circa 2003, is that Abramovich wants to get into football, wants to own a Premier League club. He looks around several different options. He's not a football expert. But he has a fine understanding of... He has a fine instinct, let's put it that way. So he looks at Spurs, for the most part, and Chelsea. Let's say for a minute, hypothetically, that he looked at Leeds. Now, if you look at Leeds, they had a fantastic playing squad. It was probably a bit too big, a little bit unwieldy. The wage bill was quite high. But the training ground hasn't really been touched very much. It's a little bit run down. You, the stadium hasn't been touched in since the there was a new stand that was built for 1995 for the 96 Euros held in Britain, England. And so as a result, if you you'd have to wipe out the debts you then have to you know, rebuild the stadium, you then have to rebuild the training ground. That's a huge amount of money. Even if you, know, you consider that 2003 Roman Abramovich was willing to put a large amount of money into football, he wasn't willing to underwrite that much money. Now, Spurs is slightly different. There's no debt. Daniel Levy is asking for a, you know, quite a high price, but... You can see that the club had the history. You know, there's land around White Hot Lane that could easily be sort of bought to rebuild the stadium. But on the playing side, the team have been you know mid table. You know, hadn't finished in the bottom six, hadn't finished in the top six. They were kind of floating around in that kind of purgatory. So to get them to the level that you'd want that Bramwich wants would take some time and would take you know two hundred yeah you know, you know two hundred million pounds. Whereby what Chelsea offer is that the, the squad has just qualified for the Champions League just ahead of Liverpool, so one of the old guard. The stadium's been completely redeveloped. You have the Chelsea Village side of it. Really, the only problem that they have is they're sort of 200, 250 million pounds in debt. So what Abramovich basically says is that the brick expenditure of Leeds and Chelsea wasn't actually wrong. The model itself wasn't wrong. He repudiates the resource. So in other words, what he realises is that Leeds are a Ponzi scheme that will eventually inevitably run out of money because it's unsustainable in that regards. And at Chelsea, the problem was is that Bates has almost bitten off too much more than he can chew. In other words, he tried to redevelop the ground, the surrounding area, and at the same time maintain the football club at a high level. In other words, you could have easily built Chelsea Village, seen how successful that was in terms of whether it was something that could turn a profit, and then work on the squad. But the thing is with brick ownership is that there's always a sense of pace. In other words, they're not willing to wait around because the longer the in other words, each year in the nineties that you don't progress, you fall further behind United and to an extent, you know, Arsenal under Wenger, the original Wenger, and to an extent, you know, Liverpool. And because 
there was no guarantee at that point in the early 2000s that Leeds were going to fail. We now know they do fail, but when they were, you know, in the sort of semi-finals of the Champions League and, you know, looking as if they were going to compete for the league with United, there was no guarantee. There was only three spots in the Champions League and falling behind, you know, with Chelsea's past history where there wasn't a huge amount of success. Same thing with Leeds outside of the sort of 91-92 championship success under... Howard Wilkinson. And the, the really the lesson that you can learn from it. I mean, every at the time people considered you know, when when I first heard about Bramovich and what he was planning to in the Indian Standard, I didn't believe. I just didn't believe that there was going to be someone coming off on a white horse and wipe out all of Chelsea's debt in a you know, in a heartbeat, in a stroke of a pen, and then also spend hundred and fifty million pounds on the playing squad. And at the time it seemed unsustainable it seemed almost as unsustainable as Leeds expenditure to an extent and even Bates expenditure now how long is this going to last but what history really says is that while you know Abramovich expenditure was gaudy it's been perfectly vindicated it history has said that we're right in other words the money that Abramovich put in to wipe out Chelsea's debt was better than if you tried to spend it on a new stadium for Tottenham because actually the you know although it was 300 let's say 350 million pounds that 350 million pounds went pushed chelsea to such a level of success so quickly that the 300 if you put that same 350 million pounds into leeds that same 350 million pounds into let's say any one of the lower clubs you know if the 350 million pounds doesn't solve leeds's problems Three hundred fifty million pounds put Spurs, yeah, you know, on the road to success. But they would still it would take four or five years for that to even get to the point where you'd be looking at the Champions League. You know, Rona Bramwich doesn't want a project like Daniel Levy wants. Levy is willing to wait ten, fifteen years. Okay, we'll push the club up into the European places once we're established in the European. Even if it is like the Europa, the UEFA Cup, that will then allow us to push ourselves in a position to rebuild the stadium. Bramwich doesn't want that. Bramwich is quite more than willing to spend two hundred million pounds wiping out Ken Bates's debts just so he doesn't have to spend time in the Europa League, which is a logic you can fundamentally understand. For me, the best way of explaining Roman of Bramwich is really that there's part one and part two. Part one, he's Vito Corleone. You know, he destroys Arsenal under its own weight of the debts of the Emirates. In other words, Arsenal are looking to, they see it as a duopoly. They see that eventually Leeds will fall apart, Chelsea will fall apart. You know, as almost a corollary of the ITV digital failure. The, and that as long as they build the stadium, you know, the Emirates, they will then be somewhere close to a par with Manchester United for infrastructure. They've rebuilt the training ground. They have a brilliant manager who's just who is the a comparable of Sir Alex Ferguson. So then they're going to be the two teams battling it out forevermore to be the dominant team in England and in Europe. Under the knowledge that yes there will be you know debts related to the Emirates but there will be, you know, guaranteed Champions League football and you know, eventually, you know, in the long term, 
they will still be able to compete with United. You know, even if they have to a short term sort of dip, but in the long term they will be able to match United pound for pound. Abramovich just goes and within you know, essentially again, two you know swipes of a pen, immediately you know blitzes that out of the water. You know he, while he doesn't kill United, he certainly stuns United in the sense that now that it's a three-way battle, and that you know, not only is he willing to compete, he's willing to outspend Ferguson, and that. Which comes down to really, was he, do you think that Abramovich was guaranteed, you know, probably a better way of putting it is, was Roman Abramovich's Chelsea inevitably going to be a success? How I would put it is that Abramovich doesn't turn up in Premier League football without Sir John Hall, Sir Jack Walker, and Kenny Dalglish, and Kevin Keegan. Right. Simply on the basis that they offered a model which matched exactly what his desires were. He wanted instantaneous success. He wanted power and control. And Chelsea offered that. There was the element of glamour, there was the infrastructure already there, there was the playing squad, and and while Chelsea had been successful, it was only relative success. In other words, they'd won League Cups, they'd won FA Cups, they'd won the Cup Winners' Cup, they'd qualified for the Champions League in the early 2000s, but they had never won the league. They'd sort of they'd been always the sort of romantics favourites. In other words, they'd spend quite a bit of money. That on paper the squad looked good, but it would all they would always sort of fail away to a kind of third. While United were you know steamrolling it, and in the years when Arsenal were brilliant, they were the team winning. And I suppose the perfect embodiment of that culture is probably. Claudio Ranieri. In other words, he's very personable. He's kind of a, you know, popular with the neutral fan, but he's not considered a winner in the same sense that Wenger. In other words, Wenger can be very aggressive. You know, when you know, in other words, the battles between United and Ferguson in particular were, you know, they had an edge to it. And the rise of the modern media manager really shows that. Short-term saturation investment could work if you had the right person in charge. You know, the famous manager would give it legitimacy, which is really where sort of Mourinho comes in. In other words, they don't believe that you know Ranieri, even you know he has a good year. He takes Chelsea into the Champions League. They get through to the semi-finals but in the semi-finals they lose to an unfancied Monaco in a lacklustre way in other words it's badly managed it just even from a media standpoint he looks flustered during you know the second leg they make some bad substitutions and they kind of fall apart at the last hurdle I suppose the flip side is where the in some ways, 
Abramovich was a continuation. He was just, in other words, people that criticise sort of the foreign ownership in the Premier League, I think in some ways misunderstand the way that the Premier League invited someone like Abramovich in. In other words, you'd had, you know, the stage one brick owners had laid down the path and the model that he ends up undertaking is one that had already been perfected. You know, by Blackburn, by Newcastle, to an extent by Leeds, and to an extent by Bates. In other words, you know, Bramovich doesn't want to go down the Alan Sugar you know, role, road. He doesn't want to go down the Enoch Daniel Levy road. He wants the instantaneous success. And But what underpins Abramovich is the part two, the Michael Corleone era. In other words, there's always an element that Abramovich understands that he wants the success and he wants it now and he doesn't want to wait for a project. He doesn't want to oversee a full rebuild project where he, which would be you know, what English football traditionally did. In other words, you'd get a great manager, he builds the club, you build the stadium and then you have the success which is longer lasting. Abramovich wants it here and now and Chelsea offer him that. But there's always an element that's is essentially that that's just part of the process. In other words, the part two is the Michael Colony stage is when basically he's trying to take the business legitimate. In other words, he spent all of this money, but it after all, it is his money. And he wants to turn the business around. He doesn't want it to constantly lose money forever. In other words, at the beginning, when he's really effectively learning the business of football, he uses his fine instincts. His instincts tell him that Claudio Ranieri is, has done just enough of a good job. You know, he is solidifying Chelsea. But it, eventually, you will win the league title if you keep with him. But it's not going to. It might take another season. And what Mourinho offers is the ideal media manager he really will walk in there and say in his press conference I am the special one he will immediately give you the, the success that Abramovich and to an extent the Chelsea fans were craving but eventually you know there it Abramovich's attitude is it's not going to carry on forever because the more he learns about the business the more he thinks he sees the sort of inefficiencies and actually, if only you could build enough of a you know, youth development structure, you could then end up not having to spend £30 million a player, not having to constantly you know, churn over you know, 50s, 20s, £100 million every single summer and you know, winter transfer window. You actually could end up creating your own level of, of quality players and that way you wouldn't have to spend that money. In other words, he's more than happy to throw money at Spurs to get Frank Arneson. Because he, um, you know, his attitude is, I will spend that money because in the end it will save me money. And I suppose the, the ultimate sort of irony really is that Abramovich doesn't foresee the third wave owners. So the third wave owners are, took two lessons from the second wave owners. So, so Abramovich is that the power of football had political capital that was really ripe for death to exploitation. And that's where you get Abu Dhabi taking over Man City. That's why you get Taksin Shinawatra taking over Man City. 
and that a secondary sort of lesson was that the economy of football and the business models surrounding it was mature. So essentially, you know, acquiring a football club was a sensible long-term investment in a bull market. And so the, so the understanding is, is that Abu Dhabi take on Manchester City because they see the positives that owning a fantastic and a successful English football club could do in projecting world power, soft power, and the positivity of it. Look, they can't be that terrible because look how well they run Man City. Look how good their youth system is. Look how good their women's team is. And the sense that... And the sense that you could, with the right managerial management structure, so the, the creation of the City Football Group, is that you now had... Whereby in the 90s you didn't have the directors of football, you didn't have the football operations staff and to create something like the City Football. In other words, Enoch tried with Vicenza, with Slavia Prague, with Rangers, and it didn't quite work. There wasn't quite the information, you didn't have the computers, you didn't have the thought you know, the the scouting infrastructure with which to manage clubs in different countries. Whereby now you had a situation with the City Group that the Australian Football League had developed, the A League, you had the MLS, you had the J League, all of those leagues, and you would have the ability if you had the interest in infrastructure. So, in other words, the whole point about Man City is that you can go to the training ground in Melbourne, you can go to the training ground in New York City, you can go to the training ground in East Manchester, and they're all the same. All of the clubs play in blue they all have city in the name it's that kind of process that wasn't possible and not only that it's not necessary the point is Roman Abramovich just wants success for Chelsea and for himself he isn't interested in the political side of it he's not really a political character his only real role in political football really is sort of twofold the first fold is that he supports the Russian bid for the FIFA World Cup against the English bid. That is just essentially a corollary of having to, you know, keep Vladimir Putin on side because that's a sensible thing for a Russian billionaire to do so. The secondary one is that in the end he becomes a you know, supporter of the idea of you know the financial fair play. Because in the end if everyone kind of works on a even thing, the success and the money he'd put into the infrastructure would then benefit and would he wouldn't have to spend as much money. Because in the end, there is a limit on his expenditure. Because in the end, Chelsea just have to be successful. They don't have to project any sort of soft power elements to the rest of the world, which is what Paris Saint-Germain's owners and what Man City's owners. And really, you then have sort of a second branch of third wave owners who don't have the money of a government, a state, but they are desperate to get the elements of fame and power and investment opportunities. So Venkis taking over Blackburn is the classic example. In other words, the, the family are badly advised. 
Essentially, they're told, put the money in. Put the money in to buy the club. We, these agents and football experts, will essentially advise you. We can give you David Beckham and... Blackburn will still be in the Premier League, they'll still make a profit, you'll get this huge television money coming through, and you can then put David Beckham in a Blackburn shirt, which will go all around the world, and would make your business do better. In other words, people will think, oh, Ben Keith Chicken, the owners of Blackburn Rovers in the Premier League, that kind of glory, and putting you into that kind of ownership group, in the same way you'd be, you know, with Abu Dhabi, you'd be... You know, with Rome, that you'd be in that ownership group with worldwide you know, eyes on you. And that's why you know, Blackburn Rovers goes horribly wrong. You can understand entirely that the you know, Walker Trust, they, all they see is owners with you know, financial cash who are willing to invest it in Blackburn Rovers. What they don't realise, and what, you know, until it was too late, was that they were badly organised, badly run, and eventually the whole thing just completely falls apart. You know, the what they expected was the advantages to their chicken business don't happen. You know, the people that advise them advise them badly. They get bad players. They sack a good manager, replace him with a poor manager, and eventually, you know, they Venkies end up having to spend a huge amount of money. And Blackburn get relegated all the way down to League One. The fans are angry. The attendance drops through the the floor. And it's only really this season that they've been able to, you know, gain some measure of success. And that is to just to get back into the championship. But their budget in comparison with the rest of the championship. In other words, this time period that you've had out of not only the Premier League, but now out of the championship means that they are half a generation behind. You know, they will be fortunate to stay up next season in the championship. It is that competitive at that level. Now, the succession of foreign owners have taken over Leeds because there are advantages to owning Leeds. It is a famous club. It does have somewhat of a footprint. And the sense that you've now got a situation where a lot of foreign owners are trying to really garner an element of fame and that the money that is on offer if you do get into the Premier League. To conclude this podcast, it, it's not easy, I think, on a lot of different levels. In other words, with different ownership models, so for example, the first wave of brick owners, is that they fulfilled a need. There was a need for someone to compete with United and their structural and dominance that they had in 90s football. And at the start of the Premier League, there was a lot of smaller clubs. So yes, you know Norwich have their moment where they nearly compete for a league title. But it's obvious that Norwich aren't going to be in a position to compete year after year. No matter what happens. So, you know, n- early 90s football in the Premier League is really the strange decline of London football. In other words, Arsenal were in trouble with the Bun era. So... You know, while they're somewhat successful, they are nowhere near the top of the league. You know, Tottenham go through the financial ringer and have to be saved by Alan Sugar. You then have the battle between Sugar and Terry Venables. You know, Chelsea are in decline. You know, and it's only really when you know sort of Glenn Hoddle takes over and the the sort of rise of Chelsea Village that Chelsea go on to you know 
bigger and better things. But for those four or five years, and with the decline of Liverpool, with the decline of Everton, there was a gap. And the brick owners filled it and really helped build the modern Premier League. You know, did Jack Walker and Sir John Hall expect that Roman Abramovich would turn up in 2003? No, I don't think they foresaw it. Neither do I think that you know, Kevin Keegan and Kenny Dalglish thought when they started out in you know, football management that really what they were doing was essentially recasting the role of football manager in the Premier League for the future to create this sort of vortex now where it is, you know, you have saturation expenditure, where you have you know, media managers, where you have a very short time period in order to succeed. I don't think they intended it. And so, but at the same time, there's always unintended consequences when you make such radical change. I suppose the positives to that change is that you end up with Arsene Wenger and the positives that he brings to the English football. You know, you end up with Julio, who then brings you Rafa Benitez and the success that Rafa Benitez has at Liverpool in pushing them towards a, you know, leading them to European Cup glory. And that kind of four, three, four year period where English clubs were really dominating Europe. I think at this point it's important really to sort of compare and contrast really. So for an ex- so there is an importance in really saying, you know, it's very easy when talking about Roman Abramovich to see him as being a sort of radical figure. He only ever built on top of what was already there, what had already been laid out, and that's what the brick owners had done so. And while the money is gaudy, and while it's correct to say that his bet on English football was fundamentally correct, you know, that was instinct. Now, I don't... I think part one, Vito Corleone, Abramovich, probably didn't have... I suppose there's no... We'll never know. This is the whole thing with Aaron Bradish. We will never know how, when he first pitched up to Stamford Bridge, how long he thought he was going to last. Whether it was going to be a five-year thing and he was going to get a bit of success, you know, spend a load of money, have it, fun, have his fun with the toy, and then just get rid of it and move on. Because some of his expenditure at that time could think, well, this wasn't someone who was going to stick around forever. But then you have sort of part two... Michael, where he's trying to legitimise the business. In other words, he wants it to run as a functioning business model with a fantastic youth system. He redevelops the training ground, buys Cobham, and that he wants FIFA fair play because, you know, that would benefit Chelsea and would benefit his own expenditures. But at the same time, it wasn't quite as revolutionary as that. It's very easy to get caught up in the money and not remember that, you know, there was lots of other under underwriting factors. So you in the early 2000s, you had the slow decline of, of Italian football. Yes, the Champions League final in 2003, before Bramwich bought the club, was AC Milan-Juventus. But you were already on the road to Calciopoli. There was already structural issues in Italian football. It wasn't the, it wasn't the 90s. You know, the... You know, I've I've spoken a lot about how English football was dominated by the managers. 
Italian football was far more dominated by the corporations, the Fiat's, the families, the Agnelli's, you know, the Marathi's. You know, you you end up with you know in the eighties when you know Milan are at their absolute weakest. Is that you have Berlusconi and how he uses owning a football club to benefit Forza Italia, his you know political movement, his party, and that leads him to becoming you know prime minister of Italy. You know, you had the Kirsch Media Group collapse in Germany, where you you know the early two thousands was this sort of cocoon phase of German football, where you know the the, the financials. Yeah, it was very similar to ITV Digital, but imagine if, if ITV Digital was the top division. It, almost as if Sky had just, you know, collapsed in the early 2000s. And the damage it would have done to English football, the damage it would have done to Leeds and Chelsea, even Arsenal and Manchester United. That's happened to Germany. And it became the sort of cocoon phase of German football, which led, you know, it's being a bit wordy, but the beautiful butterfly you you had increased you know youth facilities and importance of youth football because they didn't German clubs didn't have the money to go and buy in the way the Premier League enters Serie A and you know what Spain did, so you ended up with youth football you know have you know Klopp's Dortmund you know the World Cup two thousand then the benefits that in terms of infrastructure in terms of the stadium you know you had Joachim Lowe two thousand you know by Munich. All of those things, in you know, the uh, the dividend of that bad period of German football wasn't seen until after two thousand six onwards. So that gap in the market was really where English football took over. You did have the decline of the you know, Real Madrid, t- great team of the late nineties, early two thousands. Barcelona were rebuilding after the. You know, the repudiation of the Orange Revolution, the idea was is that they stopped hiring Dutch managers and stopped buying Dutch players. You know, they had the great, you know, youth team products that came out of La Misa. So it's not So why it why it's tempting to sort of have a critical narrative surrounding Roman Abramovich, I think it's that's incorrect in almost sort of two different ways. Because he, as I've said, he's built on what was already there and the direction it was already going into. And the success of English football in the mid-2000s wasn't entirely down to him. In other words, the, the traditional clubs. So in other words, the ones that didn't have you know, the new way, the first or second wave of owners were still successful. You had a situation where Rafa Benitez beats Mourinho and Abramovich's Chelsea to get to the final and they beat AC Milan and they become European Championship European champions. You have a situation where United beat Chelsea in the final. And so that's Alex Ferguson winning it. You've had Arsene Wenger taking you know Arsenal to the final. So it was an overall strong period of time for English football. Abramovich added to it, but even if he hadn't pitched up some you know you'd had a situation where Leeds had got to a semi final, you know the Chelsea of Ken Bates had got to a quarter final on their first attempt. You know, if if an owner had come in, maybe not with the same money that Abramovich had, but it would have someone would have come out. There would have been a successful team from England. It wasn't it wasn't Chelsea or bust for English football. And 
the Abramovich money still didn't guarantee Chelsea full dominance. In other words, if you look at the... I mean, I'll do this in a, a sort of a more Roman Abramovich-centred podcast in terms of his actual legacy, but Abramovich didn't... St- didn't negate the competitive balance. In other words, if we're looking at the story of the Bricks and we are talking about Tottenham, they are miles behind Arsenal, they are miles behind Chelsea, they are miles behind Manchester United. But they, under this sort of slow and steady rise of you know, Levy, with you know, Martin Joel, with then Harry Redknapp, there was still a way for clubs to be upwardly mobile. And Abramovich wasn't squeezing that away. He wasn't looking for world domination. He wanted Chelsea to be successful, but he was also... He was more interested in terms of his own personal power at the football club. In other words, not only does he take the sort of media manager sort of and the high-profile manager, he pushes it to the nth degree. In other words, he puts himself as the centre of Chelsea Football Club. He will basically give you the money, he will give you the stadium, he will give you the training ground, he will give you the youth structure, and you have to basically match up to his expectations, or else you, the manager, will be fired. Whereby, in previous years, the manager would basically set the expectations, and the owner would then have to essentially provide the money and provide the infrastructure to keep the manager going. In other words, the classic example is Clough at Derby. In other words, Clough does really well at Derby, and he's constantly bickering with Sam Longston, the chairman, and it's Clough is the one that you know essentially calls his bluff and resigns, thinking of it as a power play, and it's Longston's the one that you know, accepts that resignation. Whereby Abramovich, and this isn't probably his overwhelming legacy is to actually build a football operation structure that is actually entirely dependent on which isn't dependent on the manager so in other words all previous great teams have at least needed some you still needed you know even though we i've talked about the decline of manager you still in during this period you had ferguson you still had wenger even the Real Madrid great teams had Vincente del Bosque. You know, you, the Barcelona team, great Barcelona team of the late, you know, mid to late 2000s, they had Guardiola. And yet Chelsea seemed to be the one outfit that actually almost structurally put in that the manager is only a short term, is almost more... And as a result what you're left with when discussing his legacy is the the merits of that. Is that if you compare him with Daniel Levy, who sacked a lot of managers, I've always had the feeling that Daniel Levy was just trying to find the right manager for Tottenham. And that when those managers didn't you know didn't match up with the with that ethos. So in other words, Harry Renat was successful, but when Harry Renat became a liability in terms of the health problems with his heart, with the trial you know, that he had to undertake during the middle of the season, and his media work. Eventually, that and you know, being linked with the England job, 
is that even though he'd been successful, he still wasn't quite what Daniel Levy was looking for. And it's only really now that when they find Maurizio Pochettino that they've had a period of not only you know, high-end success, but also of stability. Whereby with Roman Abramovich, it, you know, he's always ended up sacking managers, even for what seem to be spurious reasons. But it does seem to be hardwired. It does seem, and this is something I'll have to really talk about in another podcast, is just what that model is. You know, is it something, you know, is it comparable to the Corleone family? Is it a, you know, what sort of political side of it? And also the, and really the, the sort of politics of his, you know, managerial structure and his ownership is very interesting. And I don't think that there's a straightforward answer to it. And so I'm going to really leave you with the point that Abramovich and second wave owners and the first wave of, of brick owners in how they've created the Premier League was always a sense of competitive balance. Now, the real question is is whether the third wave of owners, so I'm talking specifically Manchester City's owners, is whether they are going to allow that element of competitive balance. In other words... The Abramovich tide, to a certain extent, you know, raised all ships in terms of the top level of English football, whereby the current success of Manchester City and the sense of the global impact of the City Football Group is that, in reality, how you know, is there any advantage in Roman Abramovich, you know, having four or five? you know, satellite Chelsea's dotted around the world. No, because he's not a political owner. He just wants Chelsea Football Club to be successful and no other way of looking around it, the success of New York City, the success of the Melbourne team, the success of the Yokohama Mariners, the success of the Uruguayan football team that they own part of is only tangential. But it's still getting, you know, in terms of the scouting, in terms of the... You know, training of managers. It's something that Tottenham can't do. It's not. It's something that Chelsea can't do. And it's certainly what the bottom half of the Premier League cannot replicate. Which is the real deep concern that you know this third wave of ownership has. Because we've seen the positives in terms of the beautiful football that City have played under Guardiola. The 100 points and the fantastic facilities that have been created in East Manchester, and the benefits it has for England's youth development, and also for the general public in a run-down area, which the government wasn't able to spend that kind of money and provide that kind of service and benefits to the, the general public. But on the flip side of it, we haven't had a sort of title race in you know, sort of four or five years that we had in the 90s. And the key question that you really have to ask is, is that Chelsea needed Abramovich or they'd been a Leeds. They would have struggled, they would have, you know, had to sell all their players, they'd have been hugely indebted. You can imagine them getting relegated and while probably not being in the same level as Leeds, they could have had similar struggles that maybe a Blackburn had, maybe a Newcastle had in terms of the relegations and you know not being able to establish yourself in the sort of top six, top four. 
So yes, there was a need for Abramovich in that regard. English football, in effect, needed a Jack Walker. They needed a Sir John Hall because of the benefits they had in terms of St James's Park, in terms of Ewood Park, in terms of challenging Manchester United. But the real question that I'm going to end with is, well, did Manchester City need the Abu Dhabi investment? Well, no, they already had the City of Manchester Stadium from the Commonwealth Games. You know, they weren't hugely indebted. You know, they were established them in the, themselves in the Premier League under Kevin Keegan. They'd finished ninth. They'd had some element of success. It wasn't something that was at that moment required. English football at that time was quite competitive. You did have, you know, battles between, you know, Ferguson, you had battles between Mourinho, you had Chelsea, you had Wenger to an extent, and you had clubs, you know, such as Everton under Moyes and Spurs under their various managers and Daniel Levy, who were knocking on the door, who were, you know, really competing. In other words, it's noteworthy that Spurs under Harry Renup finished above Man City for, you know, fourth place and the Champions League. What is interesting about it was is that that was, for Tottenham, a very meaningful moment. For Man City, it wasn't because it just was a harm, was a sort of barely a speed bump. In the end, they were still going to spend more money than Spurs. They were going to eventually overtake Spurs, and they have done. And therefore, you, the viewer, really have to ask the question, having looked at the sort of history, is whether having the owners being such a dominant part of the Premier League is whether that's something we'd want to continue, whether, you know, there shouldn't be... It appears to me that the rise of the owners has almost created a situation where we have the free market and it's very untrammeled. In other words... You know, the story of the bricks is, you know, part of the haves and have not. So you have the traditional elites, your Liverpools, your Uniteds, your Arsenals, who are still successful, will always be successful. And then you have your, you know, your bricks, your new wave of teams. So in other words, your Man City with Abu Dhabi, Chelsea with Abramovich, and then you've had Tottenham. And I'm going to do a podcast about, you know, sort of, Tottenham and you know the situation they're in right now they've had this long period of success but it's not in some respects it's not sustainable there's only so long that you can carry on having the sixth highest wage bill and it's a wage bill that is a lot closer to the seventh highest than it is the fifth highest and how long can you keep that level of success up against these kind of infrastructural barriers and if Spurs do decline well, what happens then to competitive balance? The the tools that the 90s football had in terms of Ferguson, in terms of Wenger, really there were different options and there were things that effectively limited the brick owners. The original brick owners were limited by their own patrician elements. They weren't doing this for a profit. The secondary level of brick owners... You know, effectively ran out of money. You know, the brick owners in terms of Enoch, in terms of Alan Sugar, what they had limits because they were. It was an investment. 
and it had to therefore make business sense. You know, even the Abramovich expenditure, the original Gordy expenditure, you know, within context does make sense. History has value, you know, his investment has ended up becoming a good one. It may not have started off with the impression of it becoming of being a good investment. It was a toy, but it has now become. But he is now trying to get Chelsea to be a responsibly run football club. He will still spend money, but not in the same way that he did in 2003-2004. There has been constraints, but with Man City, I see the untrammeled free market, and I don't see where that stop is going to be. It doesn't appear that stopping it just being dominant in women's football, being dominant in English football is going to be enough. It seems that, you know, there are elements of, you know, trying to control the youth market, trying to you know, dominate intermediate leagues. You know, it's it's in while I I fundamentally, you know, disagree with Arsene Wenger's comments about the possibility of there being a European Super League, it is still a deep concern. And I think it's something you the viewer have to really have to ponder is if we're at the third stage of Premier League ownership because we've seen the benefits that third level ownership has in terms of Man City and the positives even if there are some negatives or negative connotations and we've seen the negative of you know, third level ownership in terms of Gillette and Hicks at Liverpool and the damage they did you know the damage that you know various owners have had at, at Leeds. You've seen the damage that it's done at Blackburn. Is is where does football's free market lead to? In other words, who is going to be the who's going to be the fourth wave of owners, and what what will they inherit in terms of competitive balance, in terms of the league structure, in terms of the Premier League? from the third wave owners, from the modern contemporary Premier League. Thanks a lot. Good night.